not sure why, there it goes, to the transmission of the Bible. And then you go from the transmission to the translation of the Bible, and finally to our understanding or our interpretation of what the Bible says. Those are the four basic steps for us to get the God, Word of God into our minds. What this study is going to do is going to mostly zero in on this section of that list. We're going to be looking at the transmission and the translation. And again, it's important not only because you're going to run into those people that say the Bible is not the Word of God, but you're going to run into people who believe the Bible is the Word of God, but they don't necessarily believe that uh, all of it is the Word of God. And then you'll run into folks that not only will not believe that all of it is the Word of God, but then they'll believe that they can't trust what the Bible that we have in English says, you know. And they'll say, oh, you've got, this is the only one that works, or this is the only one that works, or we really need to go back and read this other language. Well, actually, we're going to see that none of that is accurate, but also we'll notice that God is really looking out for us. Because what we're going to find is all these so-called mistakes and contradictions and things that are wrong and things that are right. We're going to see that God has made it so that we can be very, 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 beyond very, very, very confident that what we have is the Word of God. We're going to be focusing, for obvious reasons, on getting to our English Bible. Because, I mean, I've, I try to speak English. I'm not always successful uh, in the way my words come out. I guess that you guys probably have the same kind of problems I do from time to time, trying to figure out which words to use. But nonetheless, we need to, to get to our English Bible. We've got to actually go back and start way, way sooner. In fact, we need to really go back and, and start at the beginning. And so that's what we're going to do is we're going to think about the earliest idea of language. That's something else that we often forget that God has done for us. God has given us the ability to be able to communicate with one another. He's given us the ability through all generations, through all cultures, to have some means of communication. And that's really where we got to start because God begins to unfold his plan for us through the means of communication. First of all, it was him communicating with Adam and Eve. Language was a part of God's creation. He told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion over the earth. Did they understand God? They understood God. They knew what God said. There was communication. So contrary to what a lot of modern sociologists and other kinds of scientists might tell you, Language did not evolve from a bunch of grunting cave dwellers. It, language didn't come from, uh, uh. It, it didn't come from that. God created Adam and Eve with the ability to communicate and to understand. Um, we, got, we came fully equipped with language and the ability to speak it, the ability to comprehend it, the ability to expand upon it. Now, we don't know anything about what language that was with Adam and Eve. It's impossible for us to know. We just know that they had communication. 
we don't know how language changed between Adam and Eve and between, say, the days of Noah when the flood came. Um, we don't know if there was more than one language that developed before the flood or whatever, but that's really irrelevant because how many languages were there after the flood? Well, whatever Noah spoke. So when we get to the time of Noah, we're back to just a single language spoken by Noah and his family. They all spoke the same language. Their near descendants would have spoken the same language. And then what we have um, when, we, when we began to look at what happened after the flood, you know that what happened after the flood is that we had the families begin to spread. Um, Noah had sons, uh, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and I've got on this map here, I've got some colored areas designating the areas that the Bible tells us, and there's grandsons' names in there too. Um, they ended up speaking all kinds of various languages. But it took a while, uh, and you know how that happened, Genesis chapter 11. It, initially, after God having told them to multiply and spread out over the earth, they decided to be disobedient to God, and they said, no, we're going to all stay together. We're going to make a name for ourselves, and we're going to build a city, and we're going to build this big tower so that we'll all know we'll, we'll have a focal point. We'll all be together in this, um, and this uh, was arrogant, but it was also disobedient, and you know what happened. God then said, I'm confusing your languages. So they couldn't understand one another. So God confused their languages. Um, he caused them to be speaking in different languages. So they spread out because they could no longer communicate. They could not continue building their city or their tower or anything like that because now they couldn't say, hand me another brick because they didn't know what the other guy was asking for. They couldn't understand each other. So they began to spread and to group out into these different groups that spoke languages. And so in there's one of the families that's very, very important, in case you can't see it from out there. Shem's descendants is that kind of green area right there. Um, they're going to play, uh, uh, obviously, a huge role in the Bible story. Um, the sons of Japheth, the descendants of Japheth, are also going to play kind of a large part. Um, they are in that area that stretches all the way across the top of the map over there. Uh, sometimes we might call, hear those uh, areas referred to as Indo-European. Um, and so that's important to us because to get to our English Bible, there are three main languages from the area of Japheth's descendants and Shem's descendants that come into play, um, especially in later translations. We're going to see a lot of Greek and we're going to see a lot of Latin and then finally English. And they're from that upper area. They're descended from that family of languages. I want to mention just a little bit about how we got to um, the various languages that we're going to talk about because language is important for us to get the building blocks of how we got where we are. I want you to remember a fellow by the name of Abram um, and he journeys, God sends him from his home and you may remember from Genesis chapter 11 that 
Abram and his father Terah, along with all the other members of the various family members that were still alive, they left a place called Ur um, to travel to the land of Canaan. They stopped when they came to Haran in the land of Aram. And that's an important place to remember, which you'll find in your Bibles, by the way, that you'll see Syria and Aram used interchangeably. It's the same, same place, right? Same, same place. Um, Abraham finally did get to Canaan, by the way, according to Genesis 12, when he was about 75 years old. But what's interesting is they stopped up there in the, in the top, up there, up in Paden, Aram, um, and they, they stayed there until Abraham's father, Terah, died. And then God told Abram to go on down to Canaan. But when you read um, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 26, most people kind of overlook this, but it calls Abraham the Aramean. It says, Abraham the Aramean. Right? And, but we, I thought he was born in Ur. You know, well, yeah, but since he had come from Haran and Padan Aram, he was called Abraham the Aramean. But after he had lived in Canaan for a number of years, then he's called Abraham the Hebrew. Because what we have happening is Abraham now is in Canaan and the language that he was speaking um, began to take on a different flavor. Um, by the way, this term um, uh, the Hebrew has two separate meanings. Uh, the word itself means from the other side. So if you look at the where Abraham came from, he came from the other side of what we call the Fertile Crescent. But also, the word means a descendant of Eber, which Abraham was. He was a descendant of Eber, so it means both of those things. And so except for a very brief visit down to Egypt, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham lived in Canaan the rest of his life. Um, so we don't know exactly how his language blended um, with the languages, the tribal languages around him as he lived in Canaan. But we do know one thing uh, from Scripture, that by the time Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leaves Canaan, you know, because Esau wants to kill him and, and all of that, <laughs> he flees Canaan and goes back up to Paden Aram, goes back up to Aram, that his language, the language that Jacob spoke, was different from the language of his Aramean relatives. It was a different language. And so again, you might say, how do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us that, right? The Bible tells us that their language was different. Um, years later, um, after he's getting ready to come back to the land of Canaan, he had some interaction with his father-in-law, Laban, that was not entirely friendly. They had both kind of uh, deceived one another in various ways. But as they were leaving, Laban came chasing down behind him, and they caught one another, but then they kind of made up, and, and they made a little memorial there. They erected some stones um, to represent a covenant between them. And in Genesis chapter 31... Um, you find there that Laban called the stones Yegar Sahadutha. But Jacob called the stones Galil. And you might think, well, what's that tell me? 
Well, what that tells me is, knowing what the languages are about, is that Laban is speaking Aramaic. That's what Yegar Sahaduta means, is the witness stones, the heap of witness stones. And I know that Galud is Hebrew, that it means exactly the same thing. You might think, well, wait a minute, how are those even related? How could they understand one another? There's a lot more in common with those words than it appears to us when we look at them, spe look at them spelled in English. When they're spelled, written in Aramaic characters and in Hebrew characters, you can see the similarities um, basically on the part, the sahud part of that. Both are the same word in both of those words. But we can see, my point is that the languages were different. Well, again, how does that help us out? Well, it helps us because we can understand a little bit then about what's going on with the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language, unlike what you mostly see, if you look at a Hebrew sign today, if you go to Israel or somewhere, or you go to the grocery store and you go to the kosher section or whatever, you look, you're going to see Hebrew characters. Those really aren't Hebrew characters. We're going to get to that in a minute. They're, they're Aramaic characters, but they're spelling Hebrew words. Original Hebrew, well, and I know you can't read the rock, so I tried to make kind of a, a copy of it. That's Hebrew. That's come to be called Paleo-Hebrew. That's the Siloam inscription, by the way, um, and so from, from Jerusalem. So if you ever want to, that's an interesting story in itself, and we won't have time to talk about that today. But that is Paleo-Hebrew, um, and it means it's the early Hebrew. Well, most of the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Um, the earliest books that we know were written down uh, were the first five books of the Old Testament. The Law, Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. You can describe them in many ways. Um, who, how do we know that Moses wrote those down, by the way? Because Jesus said he did in Matthew and in Mark and in John. Jesus tells us those were the books that Moses wrote down. Um, the the fo other folks accepted and knew that Moses wrote them. You can look at Jesus' conversation with the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 22 as they were talking with Jesus about marriage and they talk about the things that Moses wrote. Right? Um, so then you have th those five books um, followed by the others, um, and they're written almost entirely in Hebrew over about a 1,000-year period. About 1,000 years, these books are all written, and they're written, again, mostly in Hebrew. But by the time we get to the end of those books, it, it's not Hebrew that looks like this. And we'll see kind of how that comes about. We find in Scripture a series of events where Israel ends up killing off the Hebrew language, basically. The only thing the Hebrew language is left for by the time we get to the first century, by the time we get to the Gospels, is for formal study at the synagogues or at the temple. It's the language of prayer and the language of the law. But it is not the language that people speak. 
It is not the language that they completely understand. And so we've got to kind of figure out how that comes about. It's a whole series of events, but you know, if you, and I'm sure you do know your history of the nation of Israel. You know that um, they divided, the kingdom split into the north and the south, Judah and uh, Israel, and how Israel never was faithful to God. And so they fell to the Assyrians in 721 is when their capital was Samaria was captured. And so um, those Assyrians carried off a lot of those Israelites uh, and then spread them out in different places um, around the areas that they had already previously conquered. Then they brought in other folks and put in their place. The Assyrians liked to mix everybody up so that it, it, it thinned out the herd, so to speak, so there was less chance of somebody rebelling against them. And so the Assyrians, many of these lands that they sent these Israelites to um, were speaking Aramaic. And so then you remember what happened. The kingdom of Judah also was unfaithful to God. And so you had the Babylonians come and take the southern kingdom. And over three different, very specific deportations um, that lasted all the way until um, the, the, uh, more than 100 years later, about 586 was the biggest one of the deportations uh, when they captured and destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, and you can read all about that, by the way. Again, we won't take the time to read all of that this morning, but you can look in 2 Kings especially um, chapter 17 through about chapter 25 and kind of see how all of that uh, all of that fell into place but I want to show you something here that we're going to touch on again some later here is a fragment of a scroll um, of Isaiah and I wanted to show you this because here what we have happening is I know unless you really can see good or unless you're really paying really good attention You'll, you'll see that this does not look like the writing on what I just showed you on the Siloam inscription. But it is what is referred to sometimes as a square script. Well, where did the Israelites, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, get this square script? Well, they borrowed it during this time period from Aramaic because it was so much easier to see and to write than the Paleo-Hebrew that they began to substitute the, the characters. And so now, and by the way, this is one of the fragments of an Isaiah scroll that's from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And again, we'll touch on that a little more later. But what happened is then, as they began to be, um, as they began to be taken captive, they're moved out into those areas. Where is that? Well, that's paid in Aram. That's, that's the area where Aramaic was. That's the area where Abraham came down into Canaan from. And so um, that's what happened as Israel is taken captive by Assyria. And then we find the same kind of thing happen when they're taken by Babylon. They're moved over into other areas. And so the Israelites began to learn the language of the people among whom they lived. The Assyrians, they spoke a form of Aramaic. The Babylonians, they sp spoke a form of Aramaic. 
And so those dialects of Aramaic became the language that the Israelites used in their daily activities because they had to be able to communicate in the areas in which they lived. So now you have the Israelites slowly losing Hebrew. They've already lost the Hebrew in the writing that we noticed, and, and now they began to lose the Hebrew uh, in the spoken word as well. And so um, a lot of, uh, oh, by the time Cyrus came along and let the folks go back, uh, some of them went back, some of them uh, moved to Egypt, a lot of them stayed put, but there are about 42,000 that we find mentioned in Ezra um, that returned almost immediately after Cyrus issued his decree. And so you look in Ezra uh, chapter 3, um, and you find about the rebuilding of the temple, and they, they're trying to put things back in order, and Ezra is, he's an expert in the law of Moses. And so he takes a group back to Judah, and one of his goals was to reacquaint the people with the law. That was his goal. They need to know God's word. But here's a point that I want us to get. Um, Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 kind of expands on this a little bit. And it, it talks about how the folks gathered together to listen to Ezra. I just want to read a few verses here. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So notice, already we're beginning to see a distinction to the ones that could listen with understanding. Right? So there's some people that aren't going to understand when Isaiah, I mean Ezra, excuse me, begins to read from the law that is written in Hebrew. Right? Um, and so he read from it, from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him, and he lists a bunch of different guys here. I won't bother to give you all of their names. But it says, Ezra then opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was standing above the people, and when he opened it, the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then he gives us another list of names, Yeshua, Banai, Sherebiah, and on down the line. What was their purpose? He said, they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they would understand the reading. I don't know how many of us have ever paid attention to the fact that that's what Nehemiah writes down for us about the episode here with Ezra. But he's saying... They didn't understand the Hebrew anymore. There were some that had understanding, and they were listening when Ezra read it. But then there were these other men who had to translate to the other folks that were speaking Aramaic, not Hebrew, 
so that everybody could understand. That may kind of help you think of another thing that happens in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, uh, when we think about uh, the day of Pentecost, this is just a confirmation for us, by the way, that by the time of Christ, Hebrew as the speech of daily life was a thing of the past. They didn't speak Hebrew anymore. Because not only did the Jews who were in Jerusalem speak Aramaic, but then you find from all of these different nations that people had come from Jerusalem, they all spoke the languages where they lived. And so they could not understand. So they had to have people that translated. That's why they were so surprised and so shocked when on that particular Pentecost day that we find recorded in Acts chapter 2 that, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? Something's different, something's unique, and you know that the Spirit had come upon the apostles um, and they presented the message of God. They were amazed, you know, because, hey, I'm hearing them speak my language. And how, how can this be? What you've got to realize that by this point in history, there were way many more Jews that lived outside of the land of Israel than lived in it. There were, the, there were more Jews scattered around the world elsewhere than the total number that lived in Judah. Right? And so all of these languages going on. By the way, there's a whole other lesson in that. I'll just kind of throw it out there so you can kind of understand why I'm going there. You remember God confused the languages that we talked about already this morning? He confused the languages so that they would not unify and make for themselves a name. But then what does God do on the day of Pentecost? He says, here's how you're unified in Christ Jesus. And I want all of you that tried to make a name for yourself. I mean, he's not obviously not talking to the same individuals, but people, mankind, right? He says, here's, unity is not in being able to speak the same language. Unity is not in having the same culture. Unity is not being part of the same family. Unity is in Christ. And I think that's one of the reasons that we find the phrase, there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, right? Um, he is the one. So unity is in Christ. It's not in any of these. God says, I know that there's different languages. I know there's different families. That's irrelevant because you can be one in Christ. That's the name, not the name you make for yourself, but it's the name of Christ. And so God takes what he did at the tower and kind of turns it around on the day of Pentecost and makes it so the people not are scattered, but they're, they can be united again. So, but that's a whole, there's a whole lot of details you could go into about that study. I just thought I would add that in. No extra charge for that. Uh, little, little, uh, little reminder. So, back to this idea of the uh, daily language of the Jews. Um, keep in mind, they're speaking Aramaic as their daily language, but they're also, by the time of Christ, they're also speaking other languages like Greek. But Greek is usually result, uh, re, uh, reserved for like commerce and things like that. Uh, then they're also got Latin going on, which that's the governmental language of the Roman Empire. Right? 
then their daily conversations are in Aramaic, but when they go to the synagogue, their prayers are in Hebrew, and they're reading from the text in Hebrew. I don't know about you guys. I, I mean, yeah, I have a little bit of smattering of m multiple languages. Mostly I, I struggle with English, right? I'm glad I'm not having to be in, live in a place, and there are places in the world like this, but I'm glad I don't have to be in a place where I'm having to try to figure out four or five different languages at the same time and figure out what they're saying, right? Because I have a hard enough time just with one, right? Um, but that's what the Jews of that day would have been going through. Um, they would have been ha had access to all of those different languages. So Hebrew didn't completely die because it is the language of prayer, because it is the language of the text. And so, but that presents a little bit of a problem. That, that presents some issues. Because if those Hebrew people, if those Jewish people, by the way, I'll start using the word Jewish more now than Hebrew, because the word Jewish now comes to take prominence. Um, because almost all of the people that returned were from Judah, the, that region, the, the southern kingdom, right? And so during the captivities, they began to be referred to as Jews because they were from there. Um, so what we have is these rabbis and stuff would keep reading the Hebrew, but they didn't quite get across the message to the folks that were trying to listen because they weren't very fluent in Hebrew because the only people that spent a lot of time in Hebrew um, were the rabbis and the folks that worked in the temple and the folks that worked in the synagogues. And so it became completely dormant um, as the speech of common Jewish people for over 2,000 years. It dis disappeared from common speech. And so what happened then, you might say? Well, a lot of Jewish people began to return to Palestine um, in, in the, in, to the end of the 19th century. In other words, not that many years ago, relatively speaking. And there was a fellow uh, by the name of Eliezer ben Yehuda, and he took it on himself with some of his family members to reestablish the Hebrew language as the language of the Jews as those Jews began to return to the Palestine area um, in, the, in the 19th century. And so Hebrew was kind of like resuscitated and brought back to life. It's slightly different. It's modern Hebrew. It's not ancient Hebrew. But it's very much related, and if you know one, you can figure out the other without an issue. Uh, and so now it's one of the two official languages of the state of Israel, uh, you know, modern-day times. Um, the other one is Arabic, in case you wondered. So Israel has two official languages, Arabic and, and, um, and Hebrew, and they're very closely related to one another. Um, English is spoken a lot there, too. It's just not one of the official state languages. So... What we find, and this is kind of going back a little bit, backing up a little bit to help us understand that Aramaic idea. So we already looked at the map that showed the northern part where Assyria took them. Here's Babylon, and, they, and they're taken down to that part. My point here is um, that Aramaic is not just confined to the area up there around Paden Aram. 
um, it spread all up and down and all the way around what's called that fertile crescent. Um, there's an incident um, in 2 Kings 18 that helps us to kind of understand what's going on. What, what's going on here is that you have um, Aramaic then becoming the official diplomatic language of governments, the official diplomatic language of governments in 2 Kings. And what happens is Assyria had invaded at that point. Uh, they had invaded down to Judah. They had taken some of the fortified cities of Judah. And then the Assyrian king sent a delegation to Jerusalem to try to get the folks to surrender. And so to intimidate the Jews, the king sent behind his messengers this big, large army. The Assyrians got down there, and the king of Judah sent some officers out from his court to meet with them outside the city walls. And, um, and then the Assyrian folks began to speak to the officials in Hebrew, which was not normal, right? Well, why were they doing that? Well, they were making sure that they were talking within earshot of the soldiers guarding the city, that they were talking in Hebrew and belittling the king and belittling the army and the city and all that. They were hoping to demoralize the soldiers. And the Assyrians were speaking the language that the soldiers understood at the time. But the king, um, he knew what was going on. And so he realized what effect those Hebrew words could have on the soldiers. He said, no, you speak in Aramaic, the diplomatic language. And they ignored him and kept speaking that way. And this, of course, the story goes on. You know, the Assyrians weren't able to take the city. God, God was looking out for them. But again, we see that this whole idea of the captivity and all that, just one event after the other, led to what we have been looking at with the languages. And so what we find is that by the time the Assyrians had disappeared and then the Babylonians disappear, after that comes the Persians. Well, the Persians, um, since they conquered so much of, they, their main language was not Aramaic, but since most of the lands that they conquered, the majority of them, the people spoke Aramaic, the Persians, instead of making all those people learn some other language, learn their language, they made Aramaic one of the official languages of their empire. And so that um, said, well, you know, we're captive Jews. We don't have to learn another language. We, we can stick with the Aramaic we've already got. And so, again, um, by this point, as I mentioned, the uh, scribes, uh, the different ones that would write things down, they began to abandon that cumbersome Paleo-Hebrew writing because the Aramaic square script was so much easier to grasp. And here's kind of a, a transition. That top row um, would be the early Aramaic and, and the Paleo-Hebrew would have looked like that. And then you had the imperial during the time of those kings and conquerors, but then you have the one that's more familiar to you, and you might, at a glance, you would say, oh, that's Hebrew, that bottom row. But actually, it's Hebrew and it's Aramaic. I mean, it's because what happened is the Hebrew began to be written like that lower row uh, by the time you get through that. Now, 
there are some places um, in the Old Testament that are not written in Hebrew. And you might say again, well, how do we know that? How do we know they're not written in Hebrew? Um, well, because you can tell the difference between Hebrew and Aramaic um, when you're looking at the originals. For example, um, we'll think, uh, a couple of places we're thinking of examples of Aramaic in the Old Testament. Uh, one place is Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, through Daniel chapter 7, verse 28. That's written in Aramaic, not in Hebrew, which makes perfectly good sense. Where was Daniel? He was over there in captivity. He was over there um, in Babylon, right, where, where Aramaic was in use. Um, also, uh, you can look at Ezra chapter 4 through 618, chapter 7, a few verses in there, again, um, written in Aramaic. Well, again, I'll get into a little more differences later about how you can tell one from the other. But again, that's written in Aramaic. Um, Jeremiah um, chapter 10, verse 11 also written in Aramaic. You notice something common about these. These are all after captivity and stuff like that. So it's after the language began to change um, that these parts were written in Aramaic. But it doesn't end there. Most of the time we think of the New Testament being written in Greek. <coughs> Excuse me. And certainly it was for the most part but we also have examples of Aramaic in the New Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. Like Mark chapter 5, verse 1. This is when Jesus brings the daughter of uh, Jairus back to life. And if you remember what it says there, he commanded her with the words, Talitha kum. And that's Aramaic. It's not Hebrew. Those words are Aramaic words for little girl arise. Um, Mark chapter 7. Verse 34, that's, <coughs> excuse me, I don't know why I've got something stuck in my throat all of a sudden. But this is Jesus healing a, a deaf man in the region of Decapolis. Um, and he says to him, um, Ephatha, which is, again, an Aramaic word that means be opened. Um, we find, uh, again, in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, uh, this is Jesus on the cross, um, and he is quoting from Psalm 22. But Jesus on the cross is not quoting Psalm 22 in Hebrew. He's quoting Psalm 22 in Aramaic. Um, you remember he's there, Ilui, Ilui, Ramasabaktani, which is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me in Aramaic? And... <coughs> Those are easy for us to see in our English Bibles because when they translated our English Bibles, they just left them as Aramaic so that we can easily see what that is. Um, all throughout Scripture, by the way, in places like Mark 14, 36, Romans chapter 8, Galatians chapter 4, you find another Aramaic word that you probably are familiar with because there are songs that we sing sometimes that have this word in it, and you probably didn't realize you were singing Aramaic. And that's the word Abba. You know, we sing a song, Abba, Father, Father, you know, whatever. Well, that's because that is the Aramaic word for Father. Abba is not a Hebrew word. It's an Aramaic word. Um, the uh, Hebrew word is very similar, but much shorter. The Hebrew word for Father, thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much. 
The Hebrew word for father is just ab. Um, it's not abba. Abba is Aramaic. Ab is Hebrew. And so that word is used over and over and over again. And also in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, even the Apostle Paul um, is using Aramaic words. Um, that there, it's a, we usually read it all together, Maranatha, um, but it's Maranatha, um, our Lord has come. Right? Um, that's, he's using Aramaic. So I know that our, we're running out of time this morning for this section, but I wanted, to, I wanted you to understand that what happened is you began to see um, some things, and I, and I want to just show you spelling real quick. If I put these simple, you might say, how do we know that it's Aramaic and not Hebrew or something else? Well, I've put some just words up on the screen, simple two-letter word to keep it really easy. If I were to say to you, which one of those words is English? It'd be pretty easy to figure out. All those, those words have something in common besides being just two letters. And, well, all of them have the letter I in there, too. But you'd easily be able to tell that word down there on the end, if that's English. But it would get more difficult if I were to ask you about the other two, C and C. Which language is that? I don't know. Because there's multiple languages that use that word. You have to know the rest of the language around it, the context. Maybe that first French is C, and the second C is Spanish, maybe. They don't mean the same thing in those two languages. But it's C, and so you have to be able to look at a language, look at the letters, look at the spelling, and you can figure it out. And that's what I kind of want us to understand is that what we're studying for the next day or two is not to put doubts in folks' minds, but it's to help us understand what God has done very precisely. And we can see this in his word. We can see the transition from language to language to language. We can see what God has done um, to make sure that we're all together and that we are confident and can absolutely trust the words he has given us. So I'm assuming that, it's, that it's, uh, I should be stopped by now um, so I appreciate your attention. We'll add to this uh, in the next in our next time to get our next uh, hour together. Thank you very much for your attention.